All right. Super cute. How's everybody doing? Yeah, you're doing good? Looking good. Looking good, feeling good. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 today, and so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's the only passage we'll be looking at. And if you don't have a Bible, we have them in the chairs near you. Please grab one of those. Ephesians is toward the back of your Bible, probably in the last 10%, somewhere back there. On my, in my Bible, it's page 1,527. And like Pastor Bruce said, we're here today to start talking about table talk, and we illustrate that with a family table that has those members of the family, infant, child, young adult, and parent sitting there, and that that process of maturity is something we all want to be engaged in. To be engaged in that, you have to get out of what's called the dead chair, and this represents the dead chair. If I take this chair and turn it around and turn my back to you, even if I sit here and talk to you, you can hear me, but it's dishonoring, it's closed off, it's very poor relational skill. You feel neither loved nor honored. And if this is the family of God and a person is in the dead chair, that's how they are behaving. As a nine-year-old kid, I was climbing over a swing set that somebody challenged me to climb over. Danny Graves was a little older than me, and he used to do such things, and I would uh, go along because, of course, all that wisdom was flowing out of him. This swing set in my little nine-year-old brain was probably 20 feet high, but it was probably closer to 10, maybe 12 feet. It was an arc swing set, and to get over it, you had to shimmy up, shimmy across, turn around in the middle, and then kind of climb, slide down the other side. And in the middle, when I had to turn around, I was quite scared because... I neither anticipated that nor was informed by my mentor, Danny, that I'd need to do that. <laughs> so in that moment up there, you know, death was kind of on my mind. You know, on the way up, it wasn't so much, and you kind of deny these things, and we don't like to think about death or dying, and that's understandable. We like to live. We like life. But we do deny it, and part of our being in denial is some of the language we use, like stuff like this, as good as dead, Dead duck, dead ahead, dead end, dead line. Dead as a doornail. I like that one. That's, that's, that's appropriate. Dead from the neck up. That one's really funny. <laughs> dead head, dead in the water, dead on the vine, dead to rights, dead ringer, drop dead gorgeous, dead and gone, dead asleep, dead meat, dead broke, dead beat, wouldn't be caught dead, or better off dead, like you're better off dead than getting caught by your parents when you're at the top of a 12-foot high swing set. <laughs> I neither fell, died, got hurt, or got caught by my parents, and I'm grateful for that, but better off dead I don't think is ever true. It's for sure not true spiritually. You're most definitely not better off dead spiritually dead, and the Bible talks about spiritual death as well as physical death, but the spiritual one can be a little mystical, can be a little bit confusing, and so I want to help us understand today what it means to be in the, in the dead chair, and there's likely that in a crowd this size and over this week and in all the crowds we've had that there are people who are in the dead chair, and some are comfortable there, but then some are kind of starting to work their way out to understand that this isn't an ideal place to be for me now and certainly not in the future when I pass from this life to the next. 
And honestly, I don't think there's a more important consideration for anybody, no matter what age you might be, than to understand where you spend eternity. It's gonna be in one of two places, and it's gonna be with, with God or without God. And I think we all understand what physical death is and that it's coming, but here's what the Bible means when it talks about being spiritually dead. Spiritually dead is you being closed off to God. It's you turning your back on God, not necessarily angrily, not necess- it could be, but not, not necessarily with a pile of hostility, not necessarily with a lot of criticism, but you're just closed off to God. You have yet to engage in a relationship with him. And you were created to be connected to him. I think we feel that too. I think we feel like something's missing. I think there's something within us that cries out to God. We can deny it. We can push it down. We can hope that it doesn't exist, but it's there. And it's our sin. It's our lying, our lust, our greed. It's the part of us that wants to run away from what God thinks, with what God says, with what he guides us toward. If you're spiritually dead today, it's a bad spot to be in. If you're spiritually dead when you leave this world, it's a horrible place today because you will be that way forever. Ephesians 2 tells us a little bit about what it means to be spiritually dead. What does spiritual death look like? And he Paul does such a good job of explaining to this church in this community called Ephesus about what they used to be before they became Christians. And he starts in verse one by saying, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. If he was doing a table talk, he would just say you were in the dead chair in in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And if you skip down to verse 12, he continues, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Your back was turned to him. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope in the world, and without God. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. You're not connected to God, you're not relating to him, you are not functioning like a member of his family and you're not enjoying his benefits. And so I found three things to kind of point out to us to help us understand what it means to be a person in the dead chair. And it's the place you wanna get out of. I watch a show with my wife, we, you know, when it, it, they show repeats like crazy so it's easy to see. Uh, the show Shark Tank. Anybody watch that show? No cheers or anything? Just kidding, okay. It's a very, very, very good show in my opinion and it's uh, got some great characters on there and one of them is Kevin O'Leary. He's self-proclaimed Mr. Wonderful. He's not that nice. And he has a catchphrase that he says when things go south in negotiating with people. What does he say to them? Yeah, you're dead to me. He says, you're dead to me. And what he's saying is a very final declaration that we are not gonna make a deal, we're not gonna be partners, and we're not gonna be friends. You're dead to me. Harsh. It's not what God's saying. God's giving you a loving and compassionate diagnosis, a heads up, 
that you're in a spot that you weren't created to be. You were in a spot that he wants you out of. He's saying, you're in the dead chair. I love you. Let's get out. It's like a loving parent warning their kid about playing in the street or a compassionate doctor letting you know that you have a, a disease that needs treatment, and if you treat it, you'll be well. So try not to be offended when you hear that you might be in the dead chair. It's not God's intention at all. He doesn't want you to camp out there. He doesn't want to plant you there. He wants to rescue you. But he will not force you to relate to him. He can't turn you out of that chair. He can call you. He can reveal the reality. But he won't force you. Because if he forces you, it's not love. He wants that relationship with you, and he doesn't want it to be compelled. He wants you to be open with him. He wants you to relate to him. He wants to be able to freely bless you with no strings attached. So in the dead chair, we're dead to God. But number two, we, this is kind of what we look like. We love ourselves more than we love others. Nobody in the room is probably like me, but there's one thing I want in life more than anything else. More than anything else. I want my own way. I want clear blue skies, light breezes, 74 to 79 degrees every day. I want the light, the red light to know I'm coming and turn green before I get there. I want to show up in the room and I want to be heard, I want to be noticed, I want to be listened to, and I want to be liked. I even want to be loved, and there's nothing I want more than getting my own way. Verses one and two said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath, it says in verse three, just like the rest of mankind. You know, I think really at the core of who anybody is in all humanity, and the Bible even talks about this, we all just want our own way. And we act out in ways that are counter to loving others. We love ourselves more than loving others. And what's going on all around us in our families, with our friendships, at work, and all over the place is people behaving that way. And it doesn't seem like that big of a deal because everyone's doing it. And we can make comparisons and we can say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as. And so we live in this world that is all operating the same way. And we don't think it's that big of a deal, but the Bible says it is a big deal you're acting like somebody in the dead chair. So the dead chair is being dead to God. It's loving yourself more than others. And number three, it's careless about doing right. Dismissive, tolerant, sinning in doses. I'm not, again, the comparative. I'm not that bad as somebody else. And I think we, even if we don't say it with our mouths, we, we think along these lines, and maybe you've said it before, as long as I don't hurt anybody, doing wrong. I can do wrong as long as I don't hurt anybody, and I think that means physical hurt when people say that. But can that be all it means? You know, last year I was up here talking around the same time, and if you remember, if you were here, I opened up by talking about the fact that nobody in Orange County uses their signal anymore. Have you noticed this? Well, here there's a new transgression. Running red lights. There's a new comfort level with that that I have never seen in my years of driving, which is several now. It happened to me this morning. 
I was sitting on northbound Magnolia at Garfield, make, getting ready to make my left turn, uh, going west, and as I was sitting there, a silver Ford Taurus wagon went through a red light. So if it was you, I know who you are. <laughs> and there's this just weird comfort with it, and I guess that's okay because nobody got hurt, but what if everybody at the intersection learned that going through red lights was okay because that guy did it and he made it and he didn't hurt anybody? What if somebody in your neighborhood, maybe even you, you're a family of five and your car gets ripped off tonight and it's your only car and you have to go to work, kids need to get to school, people got to buy groceries and be able to eat, is anybody hurt? The thief who did that violated his conscience and he must have violated it several times before to get to that place because nobody wakes up in the morning being a righteous person and decides that they will steal a car. Many little transgressions led to that big one. His conscience is violated, and who knows what the future holds, how much bigger of a step he might take. A neighborhood and a community may learn that stealing's not that big of a deal because that guy got away with it. That I might not hurt anybody is a really poor definition of really poor value judgment about being careless for righteousness because it does hurt people. And God puts standards in the world because he doesn't just think that we need them, but he thinks a society, a world, a community, that everybody needs them. There's a mutual benefit that goes beyond one person and what they think is right or wrong. And here's the consequence, and we can see it on the news, of thinking that it's no big deal as long as I don't hurt anybody. Society is getting broken. The more it goes away from God's standards, it's breaking and breaking by the week, and it's only more broken today than it was yesterday. The more we tolerate sin and evil, the more broken it's going to get, and the easier it's going to be to do wrong. So we need to be careful about how we view what is right or wrong. If you're in the dead chair, you might not care that much. And why not? It's all about you. Your back's turned on God and it's turned on everybody else. And in the spiritually dead chair, relating that way has a certain, you can survive that in this world. You can't survive it in the next. There's not a way out of that chair when you leave this world and go into eternity. That dead chair carries on forever without God in a place the Bible calls hell. And I and any loving Christian person in this church and this church body does not want anybody in the room that's currently in the dead chair to stay there. So we want to share spiritual life with you. Spiritual life is that part of you that was made to connect with God. There is a, for lack of sounding like Transformers or Star Wars, there's a God spark in you. There's a part of you that is lit up to God. Like you, and, and the Bible even talks about the fact that it's not only there, but we know it. But what we tend to do, because we want our own way, just like I do, is we'll suppress that. We'll push it down. But spiritual life is that part that was made to connect with God coming alive. It's currently dead. It's coming alive. It's made alive by the work of Jesus Christ, who through the love of God was sent to die for your sin. To die for the part that keeps you sitting in that chair. To die for your sin and to give you victory over death. A home in heaven. Forever. 
I think that sounds great. Doesn't that sound great? Man, one thing I know, then we'll talk about it in a little bit, just the hope we have in Christ by being out of that dead chair, dead chair, by being at his table, by knowing that no matter what goes on in our lives, no matter how broken they might get, no matter how hurt we might be, no matter how much pain and sorrow might exist in our own lives or in the world, we know that no matter what happens here, because of Jesus Christ, heaven is ours. So spiritual life looks like Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, where these two little words just change everything. Yeah, you're in the dead chair. You're separated from God. You're a children of wrath. There's even hostility between you and God. But God, he comes in, he intervenes, he makes a difference. Being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You have a relationship now, you have it forever. Look at verse 13. He continues on. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile, bridge the gap help the relationship be connected. He might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Spirit, in the Spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're adopted, you're at the table, you're part of the family, you're open. You're in relationship with God. You're alive to him. You have a new life. You have a changed life. He doesn't come just to fix you, to make things better. He comes to change you, to make you from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. That's a massive transition. And when you come to Christ, you have free access to God because you're his child. And he loves you. He loves you so much that he wants to talk to you and he does so through his word. He lets you talk to him to get you, to let you share your needs and your worries, your concerns. He wants to give you truth and wisdom and guidance. You can know God. You don't need to just know about God. You are called into a relationship with him. You can know God, but you have to get out of the chair. And instead of being dead to God, you're gonna be alive to him. And instead of having a struggle, loving others, you're gonna grow in love for others. You know, by nature, personally, I'm not super sensitive. I know sensitive people. I know really loving people, and it's not hard for me to compare. I know how far God's brought me in the many years that I won't mention to you that I've been saved. It's a lot. And I know this, God calls me to love others in spite of my wiring. As a Christian, I need to grow in love for others, and I'm grateful for the fact that I have people around me who know how to love and show me what that's like 
and share love with me. Now, I'm not talking about loving on me. I'm talking about like the stories I hear and I heard some after the last service about what God's doing in their lives because of the love of God in this church family. There's a lady here, she can't travel anywhere on her own and she's very dependent on people for rides. Rides to church, rides to the doctor. And almost every Sunday, she rejoices with me about the people in this church that take her where she needs to go. And we grow in love for one another. I sometimes imagine how awful I'd be if I didn't know Jesus Christ. When I reflect on who I was when I was sitting in the dead chair at 16 years old, and if that had multiplied and germinated more so over time, it's astounding to me what I could be capable of. But because of God, he calls me into this loving family, and it's such a joy, it's such a blessing to be part of it. It's awesome to be alive to God, to get out, to, to, to be in that, in that family. And number three, if we're in God's family, when we're alive, alive to God, instead of being casual about doing right, we're going to be committed to doing right. We're going to understand that mutual benefit is worth it. We're going to understand that honoring God with our lives by joining and aligning with his value system is for our best. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were created for good works, in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's just the normal part of what it means to be alive to God. You're going to be doing good things, and you're committed to it. It's not optional. And we really don't have too much of a problem behaving this way when we see the, the benefit for ourselves, but part of why God says this is the mutual benefit, and that whole idea reminds me of a cool gift I got uh, from my wife a couple years ago, which was a LA, LA race experience at Irwindale Raceway. So I kind of like NASCAR, I, li- I like watching racing. I've liked racing since I was a little kid on the tricycle and had my checkered flag from Barnum and Bailey Circus uh, <clears throat> and, a giant, and a Johnny Lightning helmet. Anybody remember Johnny Lightning? Like, yeah, yeah, way to go, Bob. All right, sweet. <laughs> and so I'm at this, uh, we're showing up for this, um, for this race, and m- my friend and I, she bought it for me and a friend. It was just an awesome gift, and we're showing up for this race, and you go in, I've got to be honest, I was a little apprehensive on my way in, because these are big, fast race cars. It's not the cup cars, it's not the Xfinity cars, but they're close, so you walk in and there's this, it's like a store when you first walk in and there's a guy there, he's the instructor, you don't really know who he is, but the first thing he says out of his mouth after welcome, good to see you guys is, don't wreck my race car, don't wreck my race car. And he says, the guy's a character, I wish we would have videoed him because he was so fun and I looked for videos to share with you but I couldn't find any. Don't wreck my race car. And so my friend Eric and I are standing there and we're like, what is he talking about? And he's like, hey, look, boys, you're going to get in this car. And he's showing us pictures of it. You're going to get in this car. It's going to be loud. It's going to be powerful. You're going to be rumbling in that seat. We're going to strap you down so you don't get hurt. But man, that car goes fast. It'll take you right up into the wall. Don't race my, don't wreck my race car. Don't wreck my race car. And he said it over and over and over. Then we went into the instruction room with a bunch of guys and the way they stack it up is there's a schedule and you race four at a time and they have all these rules and they're going over them with you and he's saying again, don't wreck my race car. Here's how you don't wreck it. You gun it through the straight, you get totally out of the throttle in the curves. 
And he goes, you're not going to want to do that because you're going to feel the thrill of that motor. You're going to feel that speed. And your inclination is to think you can go faster if you stay in the throttle. Don't wreck my race car. <laughs> and he's telling you for a couple different reasons. One, for your own health. We appreciate that. That's easy to pay attention to. One, for your bank account. Because if you crash the car, it's going to cost you money. Unless, of course, you buy the insurance, which we bought. Um, but one thing I didn't realize until we were all done was the mutual benefit of doing right. There were other guys on the track. My friend Eric and I, of course, were rejoicing and high-fiving, but these two guys we never met in our entire lives, we were high-fiving too and saying, good job, hey, nice pass, way to do that safe and all that stuff. The mutual benefit of doing right in that context was awesome, and it's a small little picture of what it means why God asked us to be committed to doing right. It's not all about us. And God knows that, and so he passes down and says, hey, if you're alive to me, man, be committed to doing right. It's not just about you. So we're gonna be alive to God, we're gonna grow in love, and we're gonna commit to doing right when we're in the, the, the chair, that, the, the spiritual life chair, when we're able to sit at the table with the family of God. And what we're here to invite you to do today is come to that table, is to come to the table, to, to, to wake up to God, to, to accept the spiritual life that he offers, to join with Christ at the table, to experience the benefits of Ephesians 2, 13 through 19, where the hostility is gone, where you're adopted into God's family, where there's hope. How do you make the transition? We're so used to transitions. We're very comfortable with them. And some of the transitions we make in life change our destiny. Not all of them. Like a move across town may or may not change your destiny. But coming from the womb into the world changed your destiny. It was a transition. You went from one condition to an entirely, entirely new one. You became a child in a home. You made another transition. You went from being a child in the home to being a child at school. You went from elementary school to junior high, from junior high to high school, from high school to college, from college to a career. Somewhere in there, you might have gotten married. Sometime after that, you had kids. These are all transitions. And we go from one condition to another, and we're used to it, we're comfortable. Maybe we need to prepare. Maybe there's big things to take care of. God is telling us, and people who are, whoever might be in a dead chair, you need to make a transition. You're spiritually dead. You need to be made spiritually alive. Jesus talked about that using a term that we've all heard, born again. And the religious leader he was talk to, talking to about it was confused and said, hey, do I need to be born again? I need to go in my mother's womb again? He's like, no. Just like you were born physically, you need to be born again another time Spiritually, you need to make a transition from spiritual death to spiritual life. And there's three things to do that we can see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Listen to the word of God and let it speak to your heart and your mind. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's the part of God that loves you in spite of you. It's the part of God that loves me in spite of me. Romans 5.8 says, even that while we were still sinners, right in the middle of our darkness, God demonstrated his love toward us and gave us Jesus Christ. 
In the middle of that, Christ died for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The first thing we need to do is recognize God's gift of grace is everything, and it's the only thing you need. God's gift of grace is the only thing you need to get out of that chair. And there's something within us sometimes that finds it hard to believe. We wonder sometimes if God doesn't need our help that we might need to do some tuning up, some fixing up, some cleaning up before we come to God and that's not what he's asking for. It's not of any kind of work, nothing small, nothing gigantic. Just come to him. It's all about Jesus. He died for you. He took care of your sin. You can't take care of that on your own. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. You cannot do that. Only God could. And to get you out of that chair, Jesus came and he died for you and rose again. And it's the only way. And number, so since that's true, number two, you need to reject your determination to leave God out of it. And like I said at the beginning, maybe that's a soft determination. Maybe it's an aggressive determination. In either case, you're going to have to reject your determination to leave God out of it. He did all the work. And it's just like physical birth. That's why Jesus says, born again, what did you do to be physically born? Nobody here kicked themselves out of the womb like the Doritos commercial. You didn't do anything. And you can't do anything to be spiritually born either. You can't do the work. And it says, what's the reason for that? Well, one, you just can't. You're physically and spiritually incapable. It's work only God could do. But it says so that no one would boast. Could you imagine heaven if we were up there based on works? (laughs) Look at me. I'm in heaven, dog. What's up? What's Bruce doing here? And we laugh because it's true. Heaven would be unbearable if we needed to work our way there. And God in his infinite wisdom from eternity past set up a way for us to get into heaven and a heaven that we will indwell together in perfection that could not happen if we worked our way there. So we need to reject our determination to leave God out of it. And number three, we've got to receive God's gift of spiritual life by faith alone. Faith in a God who is doing the work because it's the work only he can do. We have to acknowledge that, that I can't take care of my sin. I can't compensate for the lies I've told. I can't pay for that. I can't compensate for the way I've stolen from people, even if it wasn't physical stealing. I never stole money. Well, I guess I did. My stepdad had a change jar, and I'd take money out of it without permission. That's stealing. We can't do it. And God knows that, and only he could. Only he can do it. And we certainly can't defeat death. Death is staring us all in the face. We can't prepare ourselves for eternity, only God can. And then a loving Father knew that, created a perfect plan to defeat death, to get us out of the dead chair, and to bring us into a relationship with him, now in this life that extends into eternity forever. You have to put your faith in God. You put your faith in so many semi-reliable things every day. 
like silver Ford Tauruses going through red lights. You play, have you ever thought about that? That people are driving 2,000-pound vehicles at 35 to 55 miles an hour down the street coming straight at you, and you're trusting them to stay on their side of a little yellow line. Your chair, I didn't see anybody overanalyze, hyperanalyze their chair, you know, test it out, make sure. You just sat in a chair. It's semi-reliable. It could break from underneath you. I hope it doesn't. Now you're checking, right? <laughs> the food you eat, does anybody here have a food taster to make sure your food's not poisoned before you eat it? And we put our faith in all these semi-reliable things and we do it every day and we do it all day and yet somehow we're resistant to receiving God's grace by faith. I think he's reliable, completely reliable, worth putting your faith in. And he's the only way. To get out of this death chair and have it participate in the family of God, to be well and right, con rightly connected to God, you're gonna have to receive God's Gift of salvation by faith. Have you ever heard how to pray to receive Christ? Somebody showed me this when I was 16 years old or something like it. I just want you to listen. If you're in the dead chair, pay particular attention. You would pray a prayer something like this. Dear God, today I realize I'm lost on my own. I believe what Jesus did on the cross and by raising from the dead will make me spiritually alive. I know I am a helpless sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Thank you for your gift of salvation. I commit to follow you now. Thank you for making me part of your forever family. If I can invite everybody in the room to bow your heads and close your eyes. It's our hope, it's our prayer that anybody in the, in the dead chair would would receive that loving warning from God that tells you that you're sitting there and understand the necessity of putting your life into the hands of Christ and decide today to make a decision to follow him, to make him your savior, to make him your Lord. And if you're in that dead chair today and you wanna get out and you don't wanna just take a step away from the dead chair, man. You want, you want to get in the spiritual life chair. You want to be at the table. I want to invite you to just whisper this prayer with me as I pray it. Right where you are at your seat. If you know you need a way out of the dead chair and today's the day, pray this prayer. Dear God, today I realize I am lost on my own. I believe what Jesus did on the cross and by raising from the dead will make me spiritually alive. I know I am a helpless sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Thank you for your gift of salvation. I commit to follow you now. Thank you for making me a part of your forever family. And Jesus, we pray for anyone in the room right now that may have prayed that prayer. We just, we rejoice in that. The Bible says that heaven is having a party over them. 
We're so grateful. Thank you. And for those of us in the room who know you, we thank you for saving us, for loving us still, however long we've been saved, to, to look at us in our, our struggle, our, our sin, our shame, and still love us. It's just amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. We're so blessed, and we're so blessed to share in the family of God, the love of God here at Crosspoint. What a blessing. And we want to be a people and a church that is dedicated to consistently letting people know that spiritual life is theirs through Jesus Christ. We do that this morning in a sermon. We do that with our lives and our families and with our friendships and at work. And we just, man, get people across the line, Lord. Bring more people into your family. Use us. We thank you that we can participate in ministry so many different ways. It makes an influence, not just here, but around the world, including when we give. What a blessed opportunity that we share in now. And we just ask your blessings on it in Jesus' name. Amen.